Dr. Jasmine Ratliff. Uh, Dr. Jazz is an applied food systems research and policy-based specialist. She's partners with academic research teams, anchor institutions, philanthropic foundations, and community-based organizations to identify root causes of and develop innovative solutions to food system challenges. And last, we have Alita Torre, who's a homeschooling mother, liberation strategist, Worker-owned cooperative member with the Parable of the Sower, Inter- Parable of the Sower International Intentional Community Cooperative, where they sell mostly community organizing products and services to sustain their worker-owned housing cooperatives. Um, just for the sake of the, the discussion, uh, we do have some some prompt questions here uh, that we are going to be driving in, but by no means is this these, the inclusiveness of this discussion this evening. Alright? Uh, if you have a question, just raise your hand and, and, and then you'll be unmuted. Uh, we want to have this to be an interactive discussion. Um, and um, open mic call to, call to action. Without further ado, I'll, I'll turn the mic over to Malik, um, our moderator, and let him begin this discussion. Thank you very much, Brother Hans. Uh, and I'm honored to be moderating this panel with Sister Lita, Brother Eric, and Dr. Jasmine. I, I will make one slight correction. Uh, she recently changed her name. She's now Dr. Jasmine Jackson. Um, I think Ratliff was her name prior to getting married uh, a couple of months ago. So uh, welcome panelists and welcome to all who are joining this important webinar. Uh, Thank you, Brother Ron and the Network for Developing Conscious Communities for this important webinar series. There's been lots of discussion for many decades in the United States about how black people might make economic progress. And um, those discussions often focus on things like buying black, buying from black entrepreneurs, so on and so forth. But one of the strategies which has been used historically by black people in this country to galvanize our collective wealth in the face of a system which is hell-bent on keeping us out of the mainstream economy has been the use of cooperatives. Uh, Cooperatives are particularly important as we look at the food economy in black communities throughout the United States. I live in the city of Detroit, which I often tell people is the blackest city in the United States. And that's because we have the largest percentage of the entire population, which is black. But even in the blackest city in the United States, there are zero black-owned grocery stores. The entire retail food economy in a majority black city like Detroit is controlled by others. In the city of Detroit, it happens to be an ethnic group called Chaldeans from Iraq who have, uh, over the last 120 years or so, uh, migrated, had various kind of waves of migration to Detroit, and because of their long experience in entrepreneurship, kind of found a foothold in the retail food economy and control almost all of the retail food outlets in the city of Detroit, both large uh, and small. When I say large, I mean the independently owned grocery stores, but also uh, Chaldeans and other folks from the so-called Middle East also control many of the smaller stores and gas stations where black people in Detroit who may not have access to automobiles get their food. 
So that's Detroit, but the situation is similar wherever we find uh, black communities. The ethnic group controlling the retail food economy may be different, but the scenario is the same. And even worse, we find that throughout the world, many places throughout the world where black people are in the majority, uh, folks from Asia, folks from the so-called Middle East, uh, folks from Europe are often controlling the retail food economy in our communities. And so as we strive to be more self-reliant and more self-determining, food co-ops become an important tool to begin to capture some of that dollar, which is now being extracted from our communities, and it provides a way to circulate those dollars in our community and to create collective wealth, collective ownership, and a model of collective decision-making. So with that framing, uh, I'd like to start uh, with Dr. Jasmine, Dr. Jazz, and we want to start with a few definitions, and I'm wondering, um, Dr. Jazz, if you could uh, define for us uh, this term, food apartheid, which is part of the title of this webinar. Yeah, thanks so much. And it will not be my personal definition, but in the chat, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance has um, created a Black Food Justice Glossary. So this is live. This is um, actually from our communications intern, Isis. Over the summer, um, we've been putting together this document. So if you want to add something or want to change something, it is live and not just words, but multimedia. So I encourage you all to visit. But I'll go ahead and start with the food apartheid definition. And food apartheid entails the systemic destruction of Black self-determination to control our food, including land, resource theft, and discrimination. A hypersaturation of destructive foods and predatory marketing. I'll put it in the chat, too, if y'all want to follow along. But it is a blatantly discriminatory corporate-controlled food system that results in our communities suffering from some of the highest rates of heart disease and diabetes of all times. Many people tend to use the term food desert, but however, food apartheid is a much more accurate representation of the structural racialized inequalities um, perpetuated through our current system. Thank you. Um, Brother Eric, when we say food system, what is it that we're talking about? Yes, yes. And first of all, I want to say thanks again to um, Dr. H well, Brother Ron Hans and the network and to you all and this esteemed panel and all of the people that joined. And yes, um, food system, and and I'm going to be like Dr. Jazz. I'm going to give a dictionary definition, um, and of course, and you can Google this. And it, it's pretty long. Um, it's the it describes the interconnected systems and processes that influence nutrition, food, health, community development, and agriculture. A food system includes all processes and infrastructure involved in feeding a population, from growing, harvesting processing, packaging, transporting, marketing, consumptions, this, this distribution, and the disposal of food-related items. And I think I can stop right there. That's, that's only a third of the, definite, uh, the dictionary definition. But it pretty much, we define it as West Georgia, we, we define it as everything from the seed to the cash register or from the seed to the, through the cash register back to the compost pile. Thank you. Uh, Sister Alita, the term food sovereignty has come into popular use in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us what food sovereignty is. 
Yes. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you to um, allowing us to be here as the parable of the sower. I'm one of the cooperative members. We're very um, thankful to be a part of this panel today. Um, food sovereignty for us in the food system for people to produce their own. For those of us in California, where I'm going to come from that perspective of why land and being displaced is such a big thing when we know the history of our people um, and those that came from the South. So to produce it, first of all, is one thing, but to be able to distribute it, just like the Black Panthers, if you know where I am, right? Distributing that in the bags that we had for our communities in West Oakland, that was a big thing. And then to consume food, again, I'm going to go back to the Black Panthers. We were able to feed um, uh, young people, children every day, and now it's a national model. Um, and so there is a amnesia that I'm going to talk about today because that food sovereignty was really about what we were at one time. And people have amnesia to forget that this is who we are. This is what we're about, but we're bringing it to back um, as a Sankofa principle almost to know where we come from, to know where we are now. And we'll talk further uh, later about uh, and how do we get there for seven generations. Thank you so much. Dr. Jazz, uh, you are the co-director, co-executive director of the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. Can you tell us a bit about the organization that you lead? Yes. Do I have a few minutes? Yes. All right. I'm going to share some slides. Um, let me actually stop sharing and share my sound with it. Um, I won't take longer than 10, I promise y'all. That's my lot of time, right? <laughs> um, so this I am Dr. Jazz Jackson, as you see on the slide. I'm newly married to a fifth-generation farmer from Tuskegee, Alabama. My husband, Terrence Jackson. Excited to be here. Um, yeah, and thanking Ryan for inviting us, Baba Malik for leading. Um, and then I also wanted to acknowledge the ancestors um, who've been warriors and basically made it our place to be here. So. Um, also, before I get talking about the Alliance, we have co-founders, one of them on the phone now, Baba Malik Yakini, Dara Cooper, and Beatrice Beckford. Um, we have amazing group of members, um, an amazing staff. I have a co-executive director, Cicely Garrett, who's the guru of the grants, and then um, all of our partners. So all these people that actually make the Alliance possible. So as I'm presenting, it is not my personal work at all. This is definitely community-led um, and member-based. So I'll get started talking some about the Alliance, who we are, what we're up to, and how that was working with cooperatives. All right, so the history of cooperatives is Black. We know that. <laughs> it is no, um, yeah, there's no question here at the Alliance because um, we understand that our work would not be possible without the cooperative model set forth by the resilient Black farming communities of the late 19th century and the Black power movements of the 60s. I know Alita was just mentioning the Black Panthers, but they definitely paved the way. Um, there's a legacy of Black people that have been audacious enough to confront violence with organization. And that legacy breathes life into our current movements, fighting to protect Black bodies from police brutality and its intersections. So we recognize our current food system as one of these intersections and from our sisters to of violence. I'm sorry, there's someone that's not me. Okay, 
great. Um, so we recognize that our current food system is actually an intersection of violence and harm. And in the wake of the murder of Michael Brown in 2014, the alliance was um, established. And now it is a coalition. Um, I'll show you a picture of us. Over 50 Black-led organizations. And the alliance, we aim to develop Black leadership, support Black communities, organize for self-determination, and build institutions for Black food sovereignty and liberation. So we're Blackity Black Black, as I like to say. Um, and we represent hundreds of urban and rural farmers, organizers, and land stewards that are based nationwide. And we're working together towards an intergenerational urban and rural movement to map, assess, train, and deepen the organizing, institution building, and advocacy work to protect Black land and work towards food sovereignty. So we do all this stuff through some of our working groups. Um, and we actually feel that we can achieve sovereignty sovereignty through democratic people-centered forms of governance and which is why our organization is member-led um and we do this all through organizing people we build institutions and amplify culture but specifically in organizing people we definitely feel that transforming society requires a deep and sustained ideological and strategic mass-based organizing and those tactics have always been at the center of confronting and shifting power in black communities something that we've always done so but still there's been years of institutionalized anti-Black racism and the deliberate fracturing of Black communities that have eroded the infrastructure of Black-led social justice organizations and the Black organizing base. So we believe that centering a transformative organizing practice actually allows the creation for that long-term strategy. And it doesn't only transform systems and structures, but it actually transforms society by shifting the way that we exist in the world. So we're organizing people through our campaigns and our working groups. We currently have three of those working groups, um, the Policy Table, Black Land and Power, and the Self-Determining Food Economies Group. And we also have three councils that are listed here um, that are governed and uh, um, by elected and also appointed members of the alliance. And one of those councils is the Moja Transformation Council, where they focus on mediation. We have a Resource Commons Council that focuses on collectively governing resources to support regaining the stewardship of 15 million acres and removing that land from the speculative market. And we also have our mutual aid council who's distributed over a half a million dollars in 2021 to our members um, and the black food ecosystem. A little bit about us and what we're doing, but I want to get a little bit more into our co-op work since I have a couple minutes left. Um, we are actually partnered with the Collective Courage Fund, and that has been established as a cooperative approach to build Black independent political power. And more specifically, the fund is created to um, building a robust cooperative movement of urban and Black rural cooperatives. Um, and that fund is named after um, the Collective Courage, the History of Black Cooperative Thought and Practice by Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart, who I may pull some answers from later. Um, but we have lots of co-ops that are part of the um, Collective Courage co-op cohort and also in the Alliance. And the co-ops are not necessarily just focused on building a co-op. They're also actually building community and addressing human needs. So um, we recently launched a market study project, and that's where we're collectively, along with funders and partners, that we're developing some culturally relevant market study principles and practices. Um, this project is a continuation of many conversations in Black-led co-op spaces, um, and most recently at the 2022 Up and Coming Conference. Um, we led a Black-led track and participants discuss the need for the culturally relevant market studies um, that can aid Black co-ops in neighborhoods in obtaining funding. 
So this, um, the current field is heavily relying on data, like census data and things that diminish the impact of black spending and demand um, for localized community food. So um, we are excited to be launching um, this project that's already launched. We're doing one-on-ones and building it now, but the anticipated outcome is actually to have a final product of some culturally relevant market study principles, some strategies and recommendations to share with communities, cooperatives, funders, and stakeholders that we hope will shift the power in funding Black-led cooperatives. Um, I got maybe one or two more slides to show y'all. Um, this is more in the co-op work. I just mentioned the up and coming conference. We do lead a Black-led day. You see Ryan right there in the front <laughs> looking, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. This is not all the people that were there, but um, over 75 participants gathered on what would have been Malcolm X's 97th birthday in Madison, Wisconsin this year. Um, and it was created, the up-and-coming conference, I'm sorry, the Black-led day at the up-and-coming conference. The conference is white, but the, there is a Black-led day that I'd like to say Baba Malik Yakini here gangsted us some space to ensure that we have this intentional to be a resource for Black-led cooperatives. So we're learning, we're sharing, we're collaborating around best practices and lessons that are learned. And we know that um, co-op work is integral in building self-determining food economies for our people and the things that they deserve. So excited that we were able to spend the day together and, um, you know, connect over some shared challenges and celebrating some monumental success as well. So um, we are <laughs> looking forward to having over 100 participants at the 2023 Up and Coming Conference. Um, it's going to be in September. Um, and... While we were in Madison, we also wanted to be sure that we amplified our culture. That's one of our principles of the Alliance. And Leanne, our communications and culture director, she curated a beautiful story booth um, alongside Basi, which was a young Nigerian photographer who was based in Wisconsin. And they captured portraits and documented freedom dreams from Black cooperatives. So I definitely want to end with this one-minute video since I still got a couple minutes left. <laughs> Last one, three, two, one. It's great to be surrounded by, you know, black people, people who look like me who also have a passion for supporting their communities. Jim City Market Co-op in Dayton, Ohio. The Northland Food Market. Chair Cooperative. North End Cooperative Market. I'm with Gangsta Girls, Sweet Soul, Kwanzaa. I definitely believe through my community development work that food, um, access to food education and access to healthy food is an extremely important stepping stone and bringing back ownership to the black community and circling black dollar. So I see it as more of a piece in the intersectional development of our marginalized communities. And I think it's very important work. My freedom dream is to live in a world where we acknowledge the dignity and worth of every human being and we're building structures that uh, affirm that. I am just enthusiastic about this really putting unity back in the community and um, coming together and having that ownership and power. So that is us. 
Um, I would love to share more. There we are. If you'd like to visit our website, just take that info ad off, and it's blackfoodjustice.org. I'm excited to be doing this work in community with so many great people, and I know that we have a lot of work to do <laughs> to get where we need to be. I'll stop sharing. Thank you, Dr. Jazz. Uh, excellent presentation. We are going to go to Brother Eric Simpson, who is going to tell us about the West Georgia Farmers Cooperative. Yes, yes. And like Sister Jazz, I have a PowerPoint presentation to share as well that's going to capture who we are as far as West Georgia is concerned. And so let me take us. All right. So first and foremost, West Georgia Farmers Cooperative, we are an existing cooperative. We're not new. Matter of fact, this cooperative is older than me and probably older than most of us are on this call. This co-op was established in 1966, and we just celebrated our 56th anniversary. Um, this past Sunday, with a, a couple of Sundays ago, with a meeting slash dinner. And who are who is West Georgia Farms Cooperative? We are, as I mentioned, an agricultural cooperative that, though originally founded mostly by family farmers, 80 initially. Then, of course, if you average eight children per family, you've got about a 960-member co-op right there. Um, but today, we are not only farmers, but we're other performers within the food system. We are community gardeners. We are value-added producers. We're ranchers. But we stand on the shoulders of these folks here because this was a thriving, very entrepreneurial agricultural enterprise that was formed in the height of the civil rights movement that came on the heels of some of President Lyndon Baines Johnson's great society programs. Um, we are an organization that created other organizations such as the Federation of Southern Cooperatives that exist today for the purpose of building cooperatives in the South. And of course, as I mentioned, we are, we are food professionals, farmers, gardeners, bakers, literally candlestick makers, um, and all people within the food system, especially consumers. Um, we're fishermen. Um, now this is one of our P6 partners. This is, this is a fisher fisherman co-op that we incubated here at West Georgia Cooperative about two years ago. And of course, and they supply a lot of our seafood products that we will have in the store. They're supplying some of them now for our CSA program and our farmer's market. We're also chefs and caterers. And, and of course, and we are on the cusp of building another piece of our food system. Now, when we say, a food co-op, our definition is a little bit more expansive than just the retail store, which is the typical definition. Our food co-op is the system that consists of the of a food hub that you'll hear that you'll see a little bit later. That's our current business. We we currently operate a food hub. We aggregate the small farmers and we sell to larger customers, be be they hospitals, daycare networks, farm to table restaurants, other food hubs in Georgia. 
that's what that's what we do now. So we are currently in business. We're just expanding to bring this grocery retail component to what we're doing. One of the things that we're excited about, we just acquired another piece of property. We already own two properties, one that our main headquarters and building and some of our historic enterprises set on, and another which used to be one of our industrial sites. We had a feeder pig operation, and we just acquired this property in the city of LaGrange, Georgia. This is 1.8 acres that will be the home of this here. This is a cooperative economic um, complex, or we coined this term a co-oplex. This will be our co-oplex. It's going to consist of this grocery store, which is the centerpiece, a shared commercial kitchen, which flanks it to the south, which will double as a front-facing hot food bar, and, of course, in the back of processing place and, of, and of course, in a space where that will um, help cultivate local culinary entrepreneurs. And flanking it on the north side is going to be a credit union. And so this center um, and this, this enterprise is going to be in the middle of a black blighted community in the city of LaGrange, Georgia, on the south side, on a major thoroughfare that's being developed, highway has been being widened. It's been a long time coming for this community. Um, West Georgia, we've done this before, years ago. We've had convenience stores and gas stations. We're doing that again with this project. Earlier, um, Brother, Mal Brother Malik, you were talking about Detroit and, of course, in, in other similar cities where, other ethnicities kind of control the local retail economy. And of course, when you mentioned gas, that is pretty much the situation here in this small town of Grange, where, you know, of course, everything that owns a gas station is either Arab or Asian. And of course, but we're going to also put gas on this, on this property as well. So people will be able to come here and purchase their fuel, get their groceries, grab something hot to eat. Um, also do some of their banking. And it was not shown here because this is a, like I said, this is, this is roughly two acres. We're also having, we're also building some office suites. So the co-op will be able to monetize and collect some leases and rents for this project. Now, this is our main site. This is our building that houses our um, headquarters. This was a center of so much back in the days. This was a building we refurbished, but it was originally built collectively by the hands of men and women that are no longer here, brick by brick. Um, and of course, this is our building down near Columbus, Georgia, on, in, in a city called Hamilton. This is our food hub. This is where our food hub is located. You'll see to the left, there's a barn, but this is an older picture. We refer, we, we renovated that barn which includes some walk-in coolers, some freezers. And, of course, this is where we store, warehouse, and distribute our products from to those other institutional retail customers that I mentioned earlier. So this is the food hub that we currently own and occupy. So the food system that we're building, of course, that is 
consists of the food hub and of course this site here that we're that, that we have on the construction that will include our grocery store commercial kitchen and credit union now our intention this is just the beginning um, we want we want this to be a model that we can duplicate in other similarly demographic that demographic areas within our region of course you know we're we're located in west central georgia we 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 nestle the border of east alabama about 30 minutes to the south of us is columbus and about 45 minutes to the north of us is atlanta about an hour to the east of us is fort valley and of course 45 minutes to the west of us is like auburn alabama so we service that entire area we have farmers in all of those locations and that's the food system that we are currently building there are some holes there are some places that we're going to plug but this is who west georgia was and this is who west georgia is and who west georgia will be um in the coming months ahead and so i'll yield there Thank you very much, Brother Eric. Uh, as you show that building, I realized I've actually been there, and I'm wondering if you know Brother Kelvin Graddick. Yes, I do. I know the Graddicks. Um, um, Kevin's grandfather was one of our founders, and yeah. his father, Collie, was, you know, of course, is a is a you know longtime member. So yeah, I remember when um when Kevin was part of that fellowship that you all were part of. And yes, all right. Very glad to see it still strong, and that you're. You're in the leadership. Uh, Sister Torre, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about Parable of the Sower Intentional Community Co-op. Yes, thank you. Um, I am glad to go last. I feel like this is an opportune moment because there's a good thing where we haven't gotten our land yet uh, for our cooperative, which is not a bad thing because of the history before our cooperative, which I'm going to talk a little bit about. Can you see this presentation, though? I just want to make sure. Yes. Okay, good. So Parable of the Sower, just to introduce it, comes out of something we say we use um, uh, Swahili and six other languages in Africa. Um, Two impito means just transition. We are not having land yet. Um, I think because the transitions and the things that have been against, against us, but we have been using our models in farming as far as in our own homes, supporting other um, community members, especially black folks that are in the HUD properties, especially black folks that are in um, encampments, that are unhoused, and um, those, especially for those urbanites that have left the South to regain that memory. And according to what we said in the New Africa, which is as long as the sun shines, the water flows and the grass grows, may our ancestors keep us. But that doesn't say that we don't come from it. So I'm going to go to my own history in this. My great-grandfather, Sterling Austin, he built with his bare hands, and this is my hand and the dirt there and the land, something called the Austin Homestead. And my great-grandfather built 10 houses, and one of them was my great-grandfather. 
my grandfather. So this is a lineage of who we were in the South. For those of us like myself that in California or the East Coast, is that that memory of who we were when we grow food together, when we watch the chicken, you know, um, next come off, and then we went with our families to get these economies we say in the East Coast and the West Coast to be able to provide in a different way. We are going back to it. So it's a once upon a time, but for me, it's also a feminist economy because one of the things as a mother, single mother, is that women have done this a lot in Africa. We call them villages, the uh, Umoja village in, in Kenya, where they said no men allowed because of not only the atrocities of what happened against African people, but in our own motherland, sisters having to um, deal with um, hurt and uh, rape and other things. And now they um, have men again in this economy. And we're showing women, especially in America, that we have engaged in using food together. My grandmother used to have me bring a dish to the neighbors, things that we had, like my homestead from my great-grandfather, Sterling Austin, who built these 10 houses, the stale land in North Carolina and Burlington. And we call it the Swahili word, if anyone could repeat after me or say it to yourself, umbadaliko. And that means being the change. It's a Sankofa narrative to know why it was important for me to know my grandfather's way, to know this land we have, and for my children who are cooperative move, uh, members to be a part of this. So we are in the process of buying and getting our land because it is a movement. We see ourselves like this young girl as superheroes because they making movies about things such as um, the Black Panther and all this other stuff. When a lot of the commonalities of who we are, we all can talk about how we fed ourselves after slavery, how mutual aid was not something just just came about because of COVID. But we used to grow food as sharecroppers daughters, as we say, right, and sons. Um, right after slavery. This was nothing new. And this is how we have this um, new economy, right? Food way we're doing it, using hip hop as a mechanism because a lot of the hip hop um, uh, soldiers talk about how do we eat right? You know, talk about food um, deserts and we're using seeds. This, and we're, you know, pay, passing seeds to those in the encampments, telling them we're ready for liberated zones, ready to go back to Pelinques, Asusumas, um, Kilembos, so that way we can come out of her because we realize that's what we're at. And so popular education, Marufu, Elimu, the regenerative economics, we call it, is Kozeliwa Upaya. And again, like I mentioned earlier, the just transition. These are superheroes in our narrative. If you look here, my son is right there where the Black Panther received their name and Selma, the sister that gave the Black Panther symbolism to Huey when they were coming to visit in um, Birmingham. That's my bald-headed son there at four, and now he's 20, still a cooperative member. Here are some of the people that have been involved in our movement, why we went to the United Nations, why we freed Marissa now, Marissa, Alex Marissa Alexander, why we got rid of the district attorney, and why even we um, were pitted. And now a cooperative, so I'm not just the uh, executive director of the New Jim Crow movement, but I am a cooperative member amongst the other sisters and brothers. So this is all about the pillars of our economy. And we believe these are important to know that imperialism, white supremacy, and patriarchy is a part of food, is a part of land, especially here in California, where black folks usually cannot build cooperatives because land is not something we can just do. We have to go around 
to get to that place. And we're doing that no matter what. But the sacredness of this, the social well-being, these words that are in Swahili, Nia, and self-determination and work is who we are. And what happens in building this beloved community, this liberated zone that we call it, and remaking the economy towards a just livable future is going back to who we were. Going back to great-granddaddy Sterling Austin for me. Wakatu, jao, haki, na ona, oweza, and that means we are going to use that muscle. Try to say the words so we ain't saying these English words no more. Try to go into another way of thinking about it. And here we also see our disabled that's with us because our cooperatives are 10 members, but we have 100 on the waiting list. But our movement is 37,000 members because of the work we did. And so usually some people say they want to first get the land. We also had the people first. But we still need the land, and that's why we use these um, structures like liberated zone as a word, because our values is bringing the internet uh, intergenerational, like I mentioned, the children and the elders. And the elders have set us, um, Community Land Trust here in California, there's 3,500 residents right now in community land trust. There's 1,500 units of housing right now in California. There's 21 counties right here in that California. But... Um, most of those residents are not black. And that's what makes us unique is that we know these numbers and we are pushing against this anti-blackness and saying it's, it is due. It is um, not only because of our B, uh, AB 3121, which is the reparations, which is how we do this, but we are going street by street, day, um, we're going street by street, block by block, not only to get to find out who's interested in this whole thing of not just affordable housing, but land-based, taking care of us. And I'm sure we'll go into details later. But we are always at peace, ready to defend. We bring with us this whole um, knowledge of land corps, which is the way we're doing it. And this is because we believe in Black-led um, land corps is to work, build, and share, and live, which is a hard thing in California. They want to say BIPOC. They want us to bring on, you know, all our Asian and Latino and indigenous with us, and we support them. We believe in them, but our sovereignty is for us to um, present this new way, and uh, we are doing this right now also through something we call the day in the life, um, and the day in the life is, oops, is that my time? Oh, oh someone give me a time frame when, in fact, um, I get to that point. So the day in the life is basically, um, uh, did I lose it? Let's see. Hopefully not. The day in the life is basically showing what we do per day when we teach people who are in the cities, right? New York to <laughs> the Bay Area is that we have to go back and show a way how do we work if we have to cultivate these gardens? How do we make it fun? How do we bring people in time baking so that it's not, it's like a union or cooperative so that we know that our work is just like if you had to go into work, but it's in on land together. An intentional community means that we do political education every day. And so we've put this mechanism called Land Corps to teach those families these basic things that they've forgotten you know, home training within the South, I would say, um, you learn because you are around land a lot. But for us in the in the cities, we got to come out of her. And um, this is how we see it. And then also we believe in the Kwanzaa principles. And so with that, 
you will see this next slide that shows how we will have our villages. And again, this is envisioning how it is. Um, but oh, did it come up? It envisioning it envisions what will happen um, in our day to day. Um, but I think I lost the slide, but that's all right. I'll come out of the slide now. Can anyone see anything? No, we can't see it. I can't see it. Okay. Oh, there it is. It's slow. All right, there it is. So the Land Corp Societies is basically our envisioning once we have our land, once we're building these liberated zones, and we are part of uh, a group with the New Economy Coalition. We're giving funding and money to black groups, but we're also part of the BIPOC IC Council, and they're mostly black people that have um, intentional communities and are on record, I should say. So our network, we call it the Underground Railroad, and we're teaching people how do you really um, do some of the things that we haven't been taught by, by having Umoja, a building society that helps you build those construction sites, right, with some of the money that we've given out to our networks and our ecosystems. But how do you also have Kujichakalia, the Food Justice Society, which is um, those that are interested in doing that day-to-day, or the Ujima, which is like for me as a homeschooling mother, teaching families about the Black radical tradition, which is important, and letting the children you lead doing the entertainment at night. Um, and then the elders, the political education, Kaumba, our office, which also connects not just our land because we're living on it, but also the community we're in. How do you connect so that we're not just um, by ourselves, by, by ourselves in a silo? And so these um, ways of reviving the village collective was because we went to the Columbos in um, Brazil, Iliaye, Boromota. We were also in the Maroon Villages. We wanted, We found out from those that took the machete and fought against the British. They have their land. We found out how they were able to, uh, to use their um, herb gardens and their gardens and the children teach it. We also found out from the Palenques when we were in Cuba and the Gullah Geechee with them as well that our fight and our battle and our political education is not by ourselves, is not only academic, but from these places called third world or second world, we learn from them. Not only my great-grandmother in the South, but we learn from the Brazil, from um, the woman in the Moja village, and these are the structures. And then we believe this. Let's hope that this slide, ah, we believe that it's more than just coming out of the U.S. into a Wakanda, into the Black Panthers, more than just the Zion and the Matrix. We really see the importance of what it means to come out of those structures that have stopped us from getting land, the true importance of rebuilding a cooperative society to new society, to who we are as Black people, where we can have everything possible by remember that Sankofa will lead us. Um, and I hope that is my time there. Thank you, Sister Alita Torre. Um, my next question uh, is building on the last three presentations, and that is, is there anything else that you would like to say that will give us more clarity on the principles and politics that guide the work that you're involved in? We'll start with Dr. Jazz. Yeah, I'd like to say democracy, um, the true meaning of actually allowing people to have a voice and exercise their 
right to have an opinion and participate in the processes. So we are definitely member-led and do lots of democratic processes and practices. And the only way that we know if it'll work is if we keep practicing it. So it's not perfect by any means. And we definitely move slow at the speed of trust. So um, I'd like to share democracy as one of our principles that we're practicing. Thank you. Brother Simpson, anything you'd like to add to help us understand the principles and politics guiding your work? Yes, um, just two words, collective ambition. Of course, as a group that's been deemed that's a numerical minority, if we're going to take power, if we're going to be competitive, um, we have to use the only thing that we have, which is our collective strength in, in, in dollars. So collective ambition is what really guides our work and really inspires us to do this work. Thank you, Sister Alita. Uh, you you gave us quite a quite an insight into your politics, but I'm wondering if there's anything else that you can share with us to help us understand the politics and principles that guide your work. Yeah, I think for us the biggest is the feminist economy, the black radical tradition because of the ancestors and those that came off the slave boats to this country. But also, I do want to say the third one for us is that we believe in this structure of uh, uh, sustainable development goals. And um, the United Nations push push for them. And a lot of those that are in this struggle believe in this. Um, So I would say those three things. You're on mute, Bob. You're on mute. I'm sorry, I should know how to do this after two and a half years. Um, (laughs) What are the economic benefits to black communities of cooperatives? Whoever would like to go first. Well, there's several studies that have been done that compares all of the business models, especially startups, and cooperatives outperform, um, you know, of course, most other most other businesses. And in my humble opinion, I think it's I think it's fairly practical, and that's because of the collective risk. Um, the and, and so the risk is spread. And anytime you can mitigate risk, you stand a better chance of being successful. So it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that based on our wealth data that we have a, lo- a large number of black um, individuals with philanthropic means to just dole out millions of dollars for these projects. But we can all come together come together collectively with a couple of hundred about hundred dollars, a couple of thousand dollars, pool our resources and not only build, but manage and maintain and prosper um, collectively owned businesses. So that's my, that's what I think the answer is for that particular question. Thank you, Sister Torre or Dr. Jackson. Would you like to respond? Dr. Jackson, I've never heard that one. I love it. Um, I, um, I I feel cooperatives are a non-extractive way to exchange goods and services. So um, why I call myself Dr. Jazz, um, I got my PhD um, in integrated public policy and development where I studied how local food systems create community and economic development. So in my research, I just studied the multiplier factor of actual jobs and how the food economy actually creates that. So with cooperatives, um, the economic return is actually 
supporting the community through jobs, through wealth creation, um, and then through having some sustainable ways to get the goods and services that they need. Thank you. Sister Alita? Yeah, I think uh, the two answers were excellent already. So um, I definitely concur with what they were saying. I think for me is the um, just the the knowing that in this generation, our kids and our families um, have so many different um, distractions. And um, raised by my grandmother, I think there is a thing of intergenerationalness. I miss being able to say in the ways and practices of our culture to just sing anytime, to hum anytime, to spiritually find that root. Like when I'm teaching African dance, brothers on the street are down, you know, and, and to be in cooperation in a community where we can touch the ground and the earth together is something that for too long, our people have been distracted to not who we know who we were before we came here. So I'm ready to go back in that way. I've been blessed. And I think that plannings for seven generations is something people talk about as indigenous, but we are indigenous in living in cooperation. We have 54 countries that prove it in our motherland. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> We've talked about retail food co-ops, and Brother Eric talked about the model that they're building in West Georgia, including the retail co-op, but this larger vision, and he talked about a food hub that's currently aggregating food. I wonder if you all can share with us, within the food realm, what are the various types of co-ops that exist? Within the food realm, well, I'll just throw out the three that we're familiar with within no co-op nomenclature. Your producer co-op, which, of course, is what we are, farmers and those that produce. Your consumer co-op, which is most what most of us are doing. And and I think Sister Torre is part of a, is, you know, her, her co-op is a worker-owned co-op. And so all three of those is what cooperatives call the solidarity model. Um, those are the three categories that I'm familiar with, but even within those categories, there are some, there are some creativity, some innovation, some nuances that you can even, you know, continue to innovate. Like a, a, a credit union is, is really um, is a cooperative. A lot of people may not know, and it's a consumer cooperative, but it's a financial product. It's a financial service, so to speak. And so, um, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Jazz or Sister Alita. Would you like to add anything to that? Um, I'll just share quickly um, the things that Eric just mentioned were the categories, but types of co-ops, I think um, you can think of any business that can be a co-op. So thinking about just how so many farmers have to work together. And if you're in a producer co-op, there needs to be a co-op that's like, doing their budgets and back of like house invoicing and ensuring that they have procurement and ensuring they can contract. So I feel that co-ops can be every type of business um, that is non-extractive and a way that's exchanging goods and services. Thank you. Sister Lita. Yeah. I'm just going to show if I can, just um, a model that I use a lot when we're doing this political education. And um, it's just this um, uh, East Bay prep, uh, which is East Bay, permanent real estate cooperative we're a member of. And we, we say like consumer co-op, if you know anything about the REI, right, you go and get your tents and stuff like that, they are a cooperative. But there's producer cooperatives. 
often used in agriculture, right? But there's um, also the worker-owned for us in this community. It's the bake sh- bakeries and Mandela bo- uh, Food Co-op. And the investment investment ones are like my my family also in, in Boston, Ujima Project, where they're doing, you know, um, different things as, as far as investing. And there's renter-owned or what have you. And then there's the multi-stakeholder one. And that could be a variety of different things. So I like to use this because those four, uh, five key words for those that are learning it, consumer, producer, worker, investment, and multi-stakeholder are um, several different kinds um, to consider. Thank you so much. She had that right at the ready. Well, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, oh, yes. So clearly all of these types of co-ops take work. They don't just come into being because we think they should exist or because we have a nice webinar about them. What is the type of organizing that is necessary to bring these co-ops into existence? Let's start with you, Sister Lita. Yes, thank you. I think for us, it's been really um, since 2016 that we've been putting together, first of all, the learning, the model, to learn from those that are doing well with it um, we did have a really good relationship with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, so having a class there, and then knowing the legal structures, because there's CLTs, 501c3s, but there's also, for us, the cooperation model in California. You can go and get that done. And then the duration of how long it's taking for us to to get, if it's a one-page, which is what we're doing for the Articles of Incorporation and your bylaws, right? But we've went through at least... 10 programs, and all those programs just supported to flush out other stuff, 24 Excel sheets. And I think even with the income levels of all of my members, some of us have been educated. Some of them went, never went to school. Some of them are young. Some of us are disabled. I think there's so much to be said about how do we train the trainer in a cooperative, like a lot of it, because I was the executive director of our nonprofit New Jim Crow, member, uh, New Jim Crow movement. It's hard for me to say, I don't want, I got to stop being the director here. I got to make sure that others know it. And I think only in movement organizing really has really helped me to say, okay, this one doesn't have good English, but I know that they're good at technology and I have to just move myself back. And same thing with the funding is a lot of groups for intentional communities a little different. Intentional communities, um, there's 5,000, um, 2,500 in the U.S. and abroad. They um, have a little different way, like Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker, uh, of how they started. And so it doesn't have to be so business oriented, which is our thing. It's more like a commune, which is a scary word for black people, but even other white folks, you know, who um, who think of the movements of communes when we're trying to talk about sustainability and um, cooperation. So I think wealth building is also another one of those for us is that it, it took us since 2016. We're not completely there because we're not on our land, but we're okay with the fact that we've had classes and we'll have more. We don't want to ever stop learning this because we want to get it right and do the governance where everyone is happy and there is a process that's laid out um, with our I's dotted and t- you know uh, T's crossed in that way that we don't leave anything out. Thank you, sis. Brother Eric, can you address that? What is the organizing that's necessary to bring these types of co-ops into? Or if you like, you can be more specific and talk about the West Georgia Farmers Co-op. What organizing has been necessary and continues to be necessary to maintain that co-op? Um, has to be 
consistent and persistent when you're trying to build anything <laughs> worthwhile. And we believe in consistency, um, you know, of course, in our culture and our community here in this co-op. But I also want to emphasize intentional and, and qualitative. You can put a bunch of people together, whether it's hundreds of people, thousands of people, and that really, if you don't have the right people, it's not going to sustain. It's going to collapse. And I'm proud to say that we've done a great job of, 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 of reaching out to people that we know that share our values. I often, when I'm encouraging people to be ambassadors for this co-op, and we've got some good ambassadors that went out and, and brought in other people, um, make sure that they share our values. If they're not anchored in community, we don't really want them. Um, regardless of the talent, because principle number seven is the foundation of co-ops, concern for community. A lot of people have skills. A lot of people want to, you know, they'll, they can tell you what's wrong with the black community and what y'all need to do is and this and that. But at the end of the day, if they're not anchored in community, regardless of all the other skills and talents they may bring, if they're not anchored in community, they're probably not going to be a good fit for our co-op. Thank you, Dr. Jazz. You co-lead a national organization. Uh, what does that look like trying to organize black people around cooperatives and food sovereignty on a national level? Slow and steady. For sure, everybody's been talking about the time that it's been taking. And I know, Baba Malik, you can attest as well to the time that it's taken to actually get a building and be in that real estate. But it is about what's happening before then. So the intentional organizing, as Brother Eric mentioned, um, and also the consistency. So people want to see the meetings happen regularly. People want to know the person that they can reach out to and not be multiple, you know, transitions and things like that. So um, it's been slow and steady, as I say, and also forgiving too. Um, as we're organizing together, we are building it as we need it. And it is not already there. It's not already existing. It is something that we're collectively creating. So that does take more time. And it also takes some grace from everyone. Uh, Dr. Jazz, while, while we're talking, you talked earlier about a market study project that the National Black Food and Justice Alliance is uh, addressing and that came about because many co-op, many retail food co-op operators realized that the uh, market studies needed to justify to funders why they should fund or give financing to a project were culturally biased. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, that project a bit and any other barriers to co-op development that you think are relevant. Yeah, so exactly what you were just saying Um the current market studies um, are based on census data. So if a regular grocery store, a big box store, Walmart or Target or what have you is not interested in investing in the community, it's because of what the census data says, that there are low-income people who have low wages, low education, and they cannot afford to eat which we all know as black people is not the truth. We are eating in abundance and we are figuring it out and we have creative ways to get food. We have snap dollars. We have family members. We share a lot. We even grow some of our food. So thinking about how the current market studies do not capture
here or even look for those type of alternative food ways, um, we're interested in seeing some actual culturally relevant practices and principles happening. So actually talking with community members and not just going off the data that's from the census. So that's definitely one of the barriers that exists. And that barrier is like from banks and from funders and from organizations that want to give grants and maybe low interest rate funding um, to startup co-ops, but they're seen as too high of a risk. So they're um, not interested in funding them. So we're hoping to change that narrative and show ways that you can actually collect data in a way that uh, makes sense in black communities. But some other barriers, honestly, is organizing. As we mentioned, it is not easy to get a group of people together often, all the time to like move things forward. So to be solutions oriented, I know we all have shared commonalities on problems and issues and we can to definitely hop on the issues longer than necessary. So that can definitely be a barrier in moving forward. Um, and then the capacity. So we definitely want our community members to show up, but they have whole ass jobs, lives, kids, they got to cook dinner. So if you're not providing a meal and providing childcare at your board meetings or at your organizational meetings, it's very difficult for people who have low capacity to show up in the community. I mean, I'll end with funding. Funding is needed, not one to two years. We need five to 10 year life cycle funding, capacity funding, non-restrictive funding for startup co-ops um, to pay people to come to the meetings, to pay people to give their ideas and participate in strategic planning is definitely some funding that's needed um, and flexible funding for sure. Thank you, brother Eric. Uh, can you identify any other barriers to black cooperative development besides what Dr. Jazz has shared? Yes, sir. Um, and we, in, in this meeting is an example of how we cure that. This is a principal five experience, education, information, and training. Um, this is one of the inherent issues within co-ops because one of the questions that I often lead with when I'm presenting in front of a large number of people uh, pertaining to cooperative economics, I ask them, who is your favorite cooperative economics teacher in high school or college? <laughs> and I wait, I wait. Well, Mr. Free was my economics. I said, no, you're a cooperative economics teacher. <laughs> and so that right there exposes the fact that because cooperative economics is not um, centered at all in our economic, in our capitalist system, there's a lot of education. And our human nature pulls us to be self-interested. Um, you know, we're families now, not like families long time ago that had eight, nine, ten kids, so there was a co-op within that family, right? And so, you know, of course, people like me that are only children and a lot of parents, a lot of families now, one or two children, we're just human, human, our human nature just pulls us to be self-interested. And so there's always this pull, how do we keep our people interested in, in the collective? How do we get them to understand that this is essential for our survival? Short-term interests are temporary. We're talking about preventing the genocide, ethnocide, and erasure of a people. And I believe that a system such as cooperative, which is an old tool that we've let rust a long time has been underutilized. And so that's one of the, um, that's one of the things that I, I see is inherent. So we're always pushing principle number five, education, information, and training. Thanks. Thank you. Sister Torrey, talk to us about organizing for co-ops, for black co-ops. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, you know, the the part for us in um, the Bay, and I'm, I'm not trying to say it's anywhere else, is that there is a big um, 
a migration that's happened here. Um, and the West Coast, because of the displacement, if you know technology, we are at the foot. Most people know how expensive California is. So organizing for us is really just envisioning what our families and um, talking about the, we're doing reparations right now, not just talking about, you know, us getting a check, which is the AB 3121 here. We've got a program called Got Reparations, and we're in the streets, and we're in this door knocking, and we're reminding people what it was like, what it was like if they had family that when they go to the family reunion and was on land, or that time where they wish they had someone to help them with their rent because they by themselves. And um, I think for us, that organizing means persistency, persistent, being persistent that we have to go to these places where we know people in City Hall of Oakland living in their cars. And I think with that devastation, unfortunately, we're taking advantage of that. We're saying the United Nations came up with this thing that we are worse than India and Africa. This just came out right during COVID. And um, it's because Black folks are are on the street in the ways the encampments is a new cooperative. And we're showing people that if, in fact, we really did with the fact we don't have, um, you know, having more political education, we can go into, we're going into the streets, we're going into our parks, and we're also using song. You know, I had some young people, we were coming up with basic need songs near the refinery because we have a refinery in our, in our town. But them young people aren't used to the elders anymore coming to them. And saying, you want us just to hang out and come up with song? You know, they kind of think we're kind of cray-cray. But, you know, that at the same time, <laughs> we've taken the time to say, yeah, let's stop everything. It's not just so get, uh, uh, as uh, what do you call it, as nonprofits do, just to fulfill their numbers, right? We are coming sincerely to give political education with our book in hand and talking with people. And if it means um, laughing, if it means crying, if it means sometimes even going out of our skills, and dancing like I did or singing, we are doing that. We are trying to be consistent, but we're trying to do um, something that hasn't been done in a while, which is we uh, talk to all our neighbors and don't sit in our offices, um, especially in remote remote times. Um, and I think that is where people see you as genuine. And I think that's for us is that people know we're genuine about this, that we want you to call me auntie. And I'm glad that folks are okay to saying comrade, auntie, or mama, or whatever they call me. <laughs> so. so we have lots of other folks uh, who have joined this webinar. We're going to open up and broaden the discussion and open up for Q&A. And what I'm going to ask you to do is uh, put your question or comment in the chat. If you are interested in uh, being on camera and reading your question yourself or saying your question yourself, I'm hoping, Brother Ron, we can unmute uh, folks at the appropriate time and they can be able to ask a question. But again, indicate that uh, in the chat that you want to ask your question directly. So you can be formulating your questions now and again, putting them in the chat or indicating in the chat that you want to come on camera and speak. In the meantime, while we're waiting for the questions from the other participants in the webinar, uh, Brother Eric, what are some Black co-op success stories? Or one, if you can name one Black co-op success story. Yes, yes. My inspiration is Southern Alternatives um, out of Lafayette, Louisiana, in the early 60s, I think 1961. Brother, um, Father Albert McKnight, um, RIP, you know, God bless his soul. Um, there's, a, <clears throat> there's a black and white 
that we would watch when we would have some of our meetings at West Georgia. Um, it was, it's about an eight minute old reel. Um, you know, those, those old <laughs> reel um, film projectors that, you know, for those that's, <laughs> that's old enough to remember I'm dating myself. Um, but it was one of those and um, Dr. Albert McKnight, he had, he was a, he was a um, black Catholic priest. He organized this co-op. They had boats um, because they, they were in a, they were in a seafood. I mean, they were in a, um, what you call a um, oceanfront town down in Southern Louisiana. They had boats. They had something to can. They had loan companies, which was like their version of like a credit union. They had all types of vegetable processing um, facilities. They made fruit cakes of all things. Um, yeah. So my inspiration and they were a thriving um, co-op. And of course our co-op was a thriving co-op, but other than ours, I would say the one that, that I've been inspired by the most is um, Southern Alternatives in um, Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, Reverend Albert McKnight. Look him up. Thank you. Dr. Jazz, give us one black co-op success story. That's really hard, Baba. Um, I'm actually pulled from Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimpart's first page of her Collective Courage book. And African-Americans have a long, rich history of cooperative ownership, especially in reaction to market failures and economic racial discrimination. However, it has often been a hidden history and one obstructed by white supremacist violence. When there is a narrative, the history is told as one of failure. The challenges have been tremendous and have often been seen as insurmountable. The successes are often anecdotal and isolated, and little understood and even less documented, particularly as a part of an economic development strategy and a larger economic independence movement. Dr. Gordon Nimhart's research suggests that African-Americans, as well as other people of color and low-income people, have benefited greatly from cooperative ownership and democratic economic participation throughout the history of the United States, much like their counterparts throughout the world. So I definitely encourage you to check out her book as it documents those practices and experiences, as well as various philosophies behind the strategy of cooperative ownership in <clears throat> African-Americans. Thank Fanny, you. So. Shout out Fannie Lou. Bye. Right. Always shout out to Fannie Lou. Always that. Uh, Sister Alita, a Black Co-op success story. Yeah, I'm going to be short because I feel like I've been really long-winded. And I'm going to say I put in here in the chat, uh, we One of our products that we're going to be doing or service is making a film about the reviving the Black cooperative movement based on Jessica Nimhart Gordon's book, Collective Courage. So I refer people because visually we um, are strong sometimes. So please um, check out our uh, page, uh, Re Reviving the Black Cooperative. It's about the film that we're going to be doing once we are on land. Oops, and actually, that's the wrong link, so I'm going to put that. That's the group link. Basically, um, all of them are badass. I'm sorry to use that term, but I love the fact from the 1700s till now, we are still in the game, and we're doing this. So please, um, there's the second one that shows all of the cooperatives that are mentioned in the Collective Courage book. Thank you, Sister Leah. So we're not getting any questions in the chat yet, so I'm going to take things in a slightly different direction. And I'm going to pull Brother Ron Hans into this conversation, uh, who leads the Network for Developing Conscious Communities. So, Brother Ron, we've heard quite a bit from the panelists about various types of co-ops, about cooperative development that they're involved in. I wonder if you could share a bit with us about efforts to connect these pieces into a larger network and develop a black cooperative economy going beyond individual co-ops. Well, well, thank you, uh, Brother Malik. Um, 
this past weekend, we convened over 20 organizations in Pittsburgh to look at examining the the possibility of creating a a black-led movement around cooperatives. And so we we, we chiseled down um, to the to the to the depth that we were allowed it with the time, just looking at names and looking at the governance. Um, and so we 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 are <clears throat> In the process of of, of moving that uh, uh, agenda, um, and I I do want to just talk a little bit about um, your um, question about success stories, because uh, as this has been noted, there's been so much success noted around the intervention of blacks in the cooperative space since 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 slavery. Um, coming out in the 1900s with the boys writing, uh, the work around black townships that were developed, um, the work of Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer, and up until recently, the work that was uh, uh, developed by the Poor People's Development Foundation in 1968. And so with that work came the, the thought of, of again, moving the, the pendulum around black cooperatives. And so um, we've really actually have have mirrored um, and taken hold of, of the work that was done uh, by the um, Poor People's Development Foundation that, that sort of birthed out of the Poor People's Campaign of 1968 that Dr. King led. And so Bernard Rushton and Cornelius Cornbread Givens, they organized and they they did it did it in a magnificent way because they they got some legislation done. They worked with uh, past mayor, uh, mayor of Washington D.C. Marion Barry in terms of uh, of putting co-ops at, at the forefront of his political agenda. Um, and then most importantly, they worked at developing the processes for the first nationally chartered cooperative bank, the National Consumer Cooperative Bank. And I, I discovered this um, story in, in, in my research uh, about a year ago. And so I've um, echoed out this work of, of the Poor People's Development Foundation in terms of its work in terms of developing the processes that, that led to the formation of this bank, um, the bank has since changed its name to National uh, Consumer Bank, uh, National Cooperative Bank, excuse me, NCB. And <clears throat> unfortunately, um, the story, as I see it, still needs to be told. Um, the National Cooperative Bank has has um, not really been um, upfront in terms of telling the story of the Poor People's Development Foundation in in its in its history on on its website, nor has it been uh, 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 documented throughout the work of, of of this particular bank. But I, I think going forward, uh, I think and see a movement, uh, and I see a movement of of black cooperatives, cooperatives, and cooperatives 
moving this agenda um, to um, to echo out the work and continue the work of our ancestors that they started and the work that uh, needs to go forth in terms of framing. Um, I, I I like to say that I'm I'm at the pinnacle of of my life, and I think it's important. And 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 I think everyone has shared this important of importance of passing this work on to the next generation. Because um, I see it as being generational work. Um, and so with that said, um, you know, I, I would like to just say to all the presenters that you that you that you brought so much intentionality into the space, so much knowledge and cultural, spiritual knowledge. And as Brother Eric said, you know, education is, is the real key. Education is the real key to, to moving moving this pendulum forward. So um so yeah. So um with that said, um, you know, I invested in, in the work and I know that uh many of you here are vested in the work and and embedding the work in in a way that we we we're gonna see the outcomes that we that we um uh, are desiring. Maybe not see them physically, but see them spiritually. Oh, thank you, Brother Ryan. So we have a question from Zoom user. I'm wondering if we can unmute Zoom user so they can ask their question. Oh, they can unmute themselves. Okay, Zoom what? user. I, I sent a question to the chat. Okay, I see it. I see it. What public policy initiatives would you consider important to support the Black-led co-op movement? And whichever of you want to respond. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll take that. Um, as you know, probably um, Baba Malik and some of us <laughs> just kind of been in this co-op game for quite a while. Um, a lot of states there 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 are, there are a few states that are very co-op friendly, meaning that they have statutes for co-ops. A lot of those states are in the Midwest, Northeast. Some of some of what we deem to be the progressive states, but in the South, of course, it's been there's not any real co-op friendly legislation. So most of us have to find ways, creative ways, to incorporate to to turn our co-op corp, corporation into a co-op. So one of the so one policy measure that I would champion that I would that I would support and want to champion. And I understand the Federation has been trying to do some work in states like Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama in that in, in that arena is to make our states, especially this is October, this is um National Co-op Month, um, by the way, um, is to try to create legislation or, or for us to lobby to try to get legislation to make a lot of these states more co-op friendly, to have statutes specifically for co-ops. Yeah, I'll echo that. Um, something I learned on our call on Tuesday um, that individual states have, um, I guess, restrictions on when you can accept um, SNAP benefits or WIC, and you have to be open for 
more than a month, actually, um, to get those benefits and knowing that on opening day, we want to be sure that all of our customers can provide and purchase food. So that's something that you actually need to be rolling with your individual state um, legislators. But um, I do wish that it was a federal policy that if it is a store and they're serving food, that they can't accept SNAP benefits. Thank you. Alita Torrey. Yeah, I'm also actually putting something else in the um, chat. Oops, it's two things. But um, the second one really just shows how we broke down, especially during COVID. We had these boxes, right? We were able to get people in in, in an encampment to help come to Zoom calls to our legislators. We have the elected in one thing you'll see. We'll have the party on one stream. We have what it was we want, what A, B, 18, 8, 16. And we put down these documents throughout COVID where some of these are, if you look now, those are uh, 78 legislations. And we did a lot. So we couldn't get people, you know, constantly to do certain things, but that was one thing they can do is show up to see, oh my gosh, they're trying to change legislation. And I think that is the movement we can take um, in this new technology um, to couple it, what we're doing. For me, hands in the ground in the dirt is more important because that's why we want our land, but also we're glad to show and to help people to know how do you get to these legislators that are sitting in state capitals or your cities and they need to hear from you and you need to bring all your crew with them to hear and to make sure they change these legislations. Yeah, Bullet Malik, I, I, I certainly concur with, with all three presenters because I, I think that we're going to have to to mobilize locally and 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 build local uh platforms around political uh, uh education political advocacy and 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 political lobby um if we're going to 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 really uh um impact the politics of 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 of, of this um uh, uh work that needs to be done around cooperatives um, you know, um, I just believe that everything is local, locally based. Um, and so uh, I think that, uh, in order to, to move the uh, pendulum around politics that we're going to have to organize locally, local campaigns in every state, in every jurisdiction there is, and, and, and keep, keep, be adamant, uh, about it and be committed to it. Uh, I think that's, that that we have to really explore what that really means and 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 um and and in in building out the political uh framework thank you so our panelists uh all of you have been black all of your life and so you you know a thing or two about black folks and uh, i've been black all of my life also and one of the things i realized is that uh, because we live in a system that is dominated by the system of white supremacy and it uh, feeds us messages about ourselves that are typically negative and are designed to keep us dependent upon others, uh, we often have a diminished view of ourselves. We often have a sense of distrust towards each other. I'm wondering if you could address kind of this um almost precursor work that has to be done to build up our sense of self so that we can fully even participate in something like a co-op. Whoever wants to address that, please go ahead. I'll take it. Um, that's, that's, 
some important psychological baggage to unpack. Um, I just think back when I first started, when I first joined um, West Georgia about 10 or 11 years ago. And the question was, how do we get our people to work together, but also spend money together and invest together? You know, because just in my own anecdotal experiences, just supporting black businesses in, 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 in the community, right? You know, there are some, you know, of course, you know, you've got your dynamics, especially in a small town. If you know people, if you don't like people, you <laughs> and all of that. So you got the, you know, that, that, that hater thing kind of going on. But I think that co-ops is a way to, is a mitigator for that psychological dynamic that we have because you're not really competing against anybody. You're working together. So I'm not going to hate on this grocery store because it's mine too. I got every right to, you know, it's, it's mine too. Um, but we started, you know, kind of this, you know, a, a little subscription-based annual membership to see if we would be able to trust or, or think enough of each other to contribute to a cause that's black-led and black-owned. And then later, of course, you know, we, some people bought healthy, um, healthy shares. And so that, made me feel good that we were on our way that through principle number five and principle number seven and principle number one, and especially principle number three, economic participation, that we were, we're getting somewhere now because we can all take pride in this because we own this and anybody attached to it that profits from it is still going to help me and affect me. So we're all in, in this together. So that was something that I observed to, unpack some of that um, psychological baggage that we that we need to um, get shed of. Thank you. Sister Leader, as we're organizing co-ops, how do we address this issue of the diminished Black sense of self? Yeah, I, I'm going to say that I agree with Eric, um, and I always say this word wrong, so my cooperative members gets on me. Rochdale principles, right? Um, I always say Rochdale or something like that. But I think um, we've included those principles in what we're doing um, in something we call the Black Trauma Anonymous, which is another one of our services. And the Black uh, Trauma Anonymous is basically saying we don't trust, right? And I agree with Eric totally that models of cooperation in those seven principles allow us to go back to a frame of mind of that home training that we had in our back in the day, but a home training of just uh, in working together in community that Asians do for Chinatown, that a lot of our um, Island Pacific people do and Islanders can do. And we have lost that whole thing because we're not in um, the same communities together. And I think so those seven principles work for us and trauma, trauma anonymous, like alcoholic anonymous or narcotics anonymous means that we keep coming back. You work, work until you work, you know. And so we have that now for black people where they can sit literally in these chairs in the bottom of a, a church or anywhere that we will have Black Trauma Anonymous, just like AA and NA have been successful, we have to first learn to trust. And then once we see that we can trust and share, then we will be in a place to be like we were when we came to this country and how we lived um, collectively, like my grandfather built those houses. And I think that's the thing is it's been taken from us, but the amnesia can be replaced by us practicing this, these seven principles and um, by completely going back to um, 
doing the trust issues, you know, going back to the ways where we sit together, like we're trying to do for Black Trauma Anonymous or BTA. Thank you. Dr. Jazz, um, Sister Lita mentioned trauma, and uh, our good sister LaDonna Redman also often mentions the trauma that impacts Black people as we try to organize for self-determination. Um, as we are healing, inevitably, we are going to have conflicts with each other. The National Black Food and Justice Alliance has tried to get out in front of that by creating the Umoja Resource Council. I wonder if you can kind of tie that into this discussion on on a diminished sense of self among black folks and black trauma and the potential conflict that can be created within our organizations because of those things. Yeah, I didn't talk much about it earlier, but the Emoja Transformation Council is one of our member governed and led um, councils that actually focus on remediation and conflict resolution um, in a regenerative way, in a way that's not harmful, that actually brings community closer together. So it's actually a council of elders that leads that um that council and excited to continue to provide services for our members in the ecosystem. But honestly, I'm thinking about um, the ways that we can not be self-diminished and like recognize our blackness and our brilliance um, is having that shared language and shared knowledge. So a lot of people as um, Alita, Sister Alita was saying about the amnesia, like they forgot that we were stolen and brought over here because we were agricultural geniuses, period. Like we knew what we were doing and they wanted us to do it for them and for free and build this country. So I think that honestly, us having some shared experiences and remembering, you know, where we're coming from, how, how amazing we've always been and how we've just organized out of necessity. And this is not like, oh, because we want a specific type of kale, which is why we're doing a co-op. Like, no, we want to eat. We want our people to be fed. We want people to be whole. So I think just coming together with that shared knowledge and shared language would definitely help us move forward. Thank you. Uh, I I do want to just interject interject the the notion of spirituality in, 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 in this conversation as well. Because I think that that spiritually we've been disconnected, and that we need to 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 frame out a spiritual pathway around the work that we're doing. Um, also, not long, also along with being spiritually connected, but also emphasizing culture as as a way of of, of connecting us and deal and having us deal with the trauma. Um, education about culture is, is so important. Um, and that's why I, I'm adamant about the, the uh, Poor People's Development Foundation being left out of the work of the National Cooperative Bank. Because if folks knew that we were instrumental in starting that bank, I don't know what difference, I, I, I can imagine the difference it would have made in terms of just being Owners, 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 owners of the the effort, and 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 and, and lifting up us as a people. So I I think that um, that spiritually that we we have to really really work at connecting uh, this work spiritually as well as culturally in terms of who we are and 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 and, and how we operate going forward. You're on mute, Brother Malik. Thank you so much. Uh, Brother Ryan has raised an important question about culture and spirituality. I want to kind of bounce it to the 
panelist, uh, but I, I want to just add a, a bit more to the question. Um, the question of spirituality when we're organizing our community is sometimes difficult because we have so many different spiritual paths that people are following in our community. So uh, part one of the question is how do we approach kind of activating our spirituality in a way which is inclusive enough to include people regardless of what path they might be on? And the second question, uh, a similarly difficult question, uh, he talked about the question of culture. And so uh, my roster brothers talk about remember the culture, and they're talking about one thing. My friends in hip-hop say I'm doing it for the culture. They're talking about something else. Um, and so how do these, how, how does this discussion of spirituality and culture fit into the development of black co-ops? And we'll start with Dr. Jazz. I feel like I'm the least prepared to answer this. Um, I'm going to kick it to Sister Alita after I say just respecting people's beliefs and where they're coming from. I think that's really can bring us together, even if we have differences, um, and, and treating each other with love. I know we were talking about how people are hating and like, well, I might not like their cousins, so I'm not going to visit their store. Like showing people love, honestly, um, can be more, you know, you catch more, um, flies with honey than vinegar, as they say. So I think, um, being sure that we're, you know, sharing that love and being radical with it. Um, Sister Alita. Yeah, um, I, I just have to say I was raised by my grandmother. I had to be in church six days a week, <laughs> so I'm very much Christian, but I'm into inter, I'm interfaith, and so I've been really blessed because I teach Buddhist culture and mindfulness. You know, I'm definitely, as I mentioned before, hip hop, and I think sometimes that is what uh, what Dr. J has said, which divides us: is are we putting portraying our stuff that came with um, white you know white imperialism and supremacy during the times we were as slaves did they put that on us so now we doing that to each other because in Africa you will see a tradition of different cultures and sometimes thousands of languages and we are uh, put in American exceptionalism sometimes and I think we need to go back to that interfaith way um, and just be inclusive and remember it's love our people are going to be different. And uh, we still got to supply that love to show that we all is welcoming. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Brother Eric. Spirituality and culture. Yes, yes. Just in keeping with principle number one, and of course, you know, obviously try not to be discriminatory. But um, as far as um, spirituality, um, now I'm in the South, so I'm in the Bible Belt. And, of course, in I'm a proud Christian, and of course, and you know, with black black Americans, what we did with Christianity, we remixed it and found a way to use it for for empowerment. And of course, and I grew up Baptist, but of course, I'm a proud member of the CME Church, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church now. And early on, when we first started out canvassing the community to get people on board with this work, maybe about 2017, 2018, one of the correlations that I would make in reference to principle number five is the the comparison that I would make to co-ops is I would compare it to the church because I was informing people that a church is, at its pure essence, a co-op. Everybody is putting in what? Their tithes to, and I told them, you can want one of our institutions that we do not let get in disrepair for the most part is our church. All, all, although we've got a church on just about every corner, even though they were sm- they're small in our community, 
Most of them have got a brand, brand new pavement on that lot. The preachers are paid, and they got lights, the ones that are operating. We put priority on the church. So the church is a co-op, but just without a profit um, element to it. So I will sell them on the fact, okay, this let us be just as passionate, um, just as zealous about our business enterprises as we are about our spiritual enterprises. So take that same energy. Now let's 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 have a passion to want to see thriving grocery stores and daycares and housing complexes. Let us, because we always get criticized, almost mocked for the fact that we put so much emphasis on religion, right? You know, Asians mock us all the time. We build business, y'all build churches. Okay, let us let us take that same energy, use that same principle to tithe the collective contribution and the management and the stewardship and build these co-ops. So spirituality can work to our benefit if harnessed right. So earlier, Brother Ron talked about this being an intergenerational struggle. And uh, we know that it's, uh, it's very long, and he's correct. It is intergenerational. It's going to take more than this generation to get to the finish line. And so I'm wondering for each of you, and this will be my last question before we turn it over to Brother Ron to kind of wrap us up. I'm wondering for each of you, how do you keep yourself strong, healthy, and encouraged? How do you practice self-care while being involved in this protracted struggle, which is likely not to be over for the rest of your life? I'll start. Um, I um, can practice more, but right now I'm reading Rest is Resistance um, by Trisha Hershey, Nat Bishop, Nat Ministry. Um, Please get it, a black woman who says that rest is a revolutionary. I've been trying to just rest my eyes, lay down in between meetings, schedule time off after traveling. I have been very intentional about staying connected to my family and not allowing work to just work me (laughs) um it feels um like sometimes I'm fighting myself as well to rest because I'm like there is so much that I need to do and so much I haven't done so being one of the youngest people in this like space that I'm in I feel um I feel very charged and like I can go and go and go but then recognizing that I won't be able to do this for the long haul if I keep doing that so um we did move to a co-executive director model as well I think that's as well practicing our self-care although either one of us could do it but it's like doing it together makes it just that much better um so yeah rest is resistance y'all Brother Eric black men in particular often uh tie our sense of worth to our productive value to our work I wonder if you can address the same question. How do you practice self-care in this long-term protracted intergenerational struggle? Yes, yes. I used to get caught up in that old saying that if you find something that you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life, right? But that ain't quite. Once you get past 40, you realize that, yeah, the um, there's only the body only has so much energy, you know, of course, within a, within a day, and you have to recreate. Um, and, you can get caught up in this work or anything that you're passionate about, but you have to be able to delegate. Um, sometimes it's hard when you're starting off. A lot of people don't like to do that trailblazing work, but when you got some that do um, empower them 
to do the work as well. So you can do other things like play around in your garden, go fishing. I've, I've got a lake. I've got a three and a half acre lake that I hardly ever use. I've got two horses that I hardly ever ride because I haven't been taking that time to recreate. But now I've got to do that because, you know, you you feel it once you start doing a lot of work. And so, yeah, um, men, that's why our lifespan has been shorter than, you know, women, because we do the work. And, of course, and you know, we, we saw our grandfathers work themselves literally to death because of, you know, the need to, to work and provide. So you have to find balance, spiritual balance, nutritional balance, drink a lot of water, and try to get a lot of stress out of your life. And, of course, and then you may can spend more time doing what you enjoy, but you have to compensate somewhere else. Sister Lita, how does self-care show up in your in your life? Yeah, um, I definitely have a lot of things. I'm also part of the NAP ministry as well. I joined in because I am um, I'm truly um, a dancing spirit. I want to say that um, I am what they call something uh, called a househead, which is for house music. Um, and my grandmother had um, before she was a minister was a, one of those dancers from the twenties that used to jump over people's head from my finally from my hand. So I think, you know, whatever it is you love, um, do that. Um, we take a lot of walks into nature. My son loves kayaking, which is a part of what we're going to be doing. He loves kayaking. He does bicycling. So taking those trails, but also to me, turning it up when we got to do that and then meditating all of those are different extremes, but it is all self-care. So just doing those things that you love. Um, I think doing it collectively is fun, you know, dinner nights as well as hiking. Um, but and mindfulness is something we sometimes start our, our meetings with because we all have been exhausted during COVID. So I said, all right, y'all, let's just bring it down. Take a collective breath. You know, if we did that just right now. Like like Dr. J said, we're we're showing revolutionary practices in ways that our communities, I believe, still in Africa have always done. We always had those things to take care of ourselves, and we need to remember that we come from those type of uh, resources. Sister Alita, thank you so much for joining us and representing the the left coast. <laughs> thank uh, you for having uh, me. Thank you for joining us and representing West Georgia, which, by the way, is where my father's family is from. So I got roots in your in your area. Which city? Uh, near Columbus. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's what's up. He came up to Detroit in the 1920s to work in the Fort Rouge plant. Oh yes, that that's great, that first that first migration. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Jazz, uh, who, by the way, Dr. Jazz is in Detroit. We were together earlier today. And we we about to be together in about 15 minutes. We go grab some dinner. So it's always a pleasure being in space with you and you sharing your wisdom and expertise and your black brilliance. And we want to thank the Network for Developing Conscious Communities for the leadership that it has shown in this movement to develop black cooperatives and uh, particularly for, for this webinar series to bring this more to the awareness of our community. And with that, we're going to turn it back over to Brother Ryan, Ron Hans. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brother Malik, uh, Dr. Jazz, Alita, and Eric, uh, for your thoughtfulness, for your mindfulness, and your commitment um, to to growing and building uh, 
ecosystem around black cooperatives. Um, I don't want to just um, just uh, end it or just letting you know that we are in the process of planning the National Conference on Black Cooperative Agenda. It looks like we're going to be in Las Vegas June 1st through the 3rd. Um, I'll be um, contacting, well, distributing um, a save the date, hopefully in the next couple of days uh, to you. Um, and then uh, we'll be um, forwarding out the recording as well. Um, so um, again, uh, without any further audience from me, uh, I just want to just thank um, the presenters, but also thank you for taking time out of your busy days to, to sit in and, and, and sharing in this conversation. All right. So that's me. All right. All right. Thank all you, right. all panelists. Thank you. Thank you, participants. And uh, stay tuned for the next the next iteration. We're keeping it moving. Keep it moving. Thank y'all. Y'all have a good Thank night. You. Peace, y'all.